Well, I'd like you to open your Bible this morning to Leviticus chapter 12. Leviticus 12, and as Lynn has referred in the, in the prayer, we're going to be taking, I think, the largest chunk I've ever attempted in a sermon. Um, it's a little fear and trepidation, and yet uh, I'm excited about this, this text for the truth that God has for us. We're going to be looking at chapters 12, 13, 14, and 15. I sent out an email this week uh, hoping uh, that you would have a chance to read that beforehand. And if you did not, um, we're not able to do that. I encourage you to do that uh, this, today sometime and just um, follow through again as we look at God's laws concerning cleanliness uh, ceremonial cleanliness and un- unclean- uncleanliness, big words. Um, I'm going to start, we're going to start by reading chapter 12, and then we'll be looking at, uh, at various texts as we go through. So keep your Bible open this morning. Let's uh, begin then, giving our attention to God's word, Leviticus chapter 12. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days. As at the time of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Then she shall continue for 33 days in the blood of her purifying. She shall not touch anything holy, nor come into the sanctuary, until the days of her purifying are completed. But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean two weeks, as in her menstruation. And she shall continue in the blood of her purifying for 66 days. And when the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb a year old for a burnt offering, and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering, and he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her her who bears a child, either male or female. And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her, and she shall be clean. Let's just once more ask the Lord's blessing. Father, now we come to your word, uh, and it's a word that reveals the truth of, of who you are and what we're like and what we need and what you've done. And so give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're in the middle of the laws concerning ceremonial cleanliness, uh, and one of the ways of thinking about these laws and maybe getting a little bit of clarity about them is to think of them as royal protocols. Uh, for instance, if you would have the pleasure to meet with the Queen of England, uh, there are certain things that you must do and other things that you most, most certainly should not do. Uh, you, should, uh, you should not keep the Queen waiting. If you have an appointment, you must be on time. Uh, you do not want to keep the, king, the Queen waiting. Uh, you must address her as Her Majesty, not Mrs., not Ma'am, Certainly not Elizabeth, Lizzie, or girl. She's the Queen of England. Uh, You're not allowed to touch her, so you don't give her a nice American bear hug. Um, No no slaps on the back. Uh, You don't touch her at all unless she extends her hand, and then you're allowed to shake her hand. Uh, Those are sort of obvious things. The rules do get a little more intricate. If you happen to be seated to the Queen's left at a banquet, you're not allowed to speak to her until after the first course. So... The, uh, uh, the rules of etiquette, etiquette here say it is customary for the guest of honor to be seated on the right. And convention is that she speaks to this person for the first course of the dinner and then switches attention to the person on her left for the following course. A Formula One a racing star, Lewis Hamilton, uh, who was seated 
on her left at one of these functions, did not know this rule, and so tried to speak to her majesty and was firmly told, uh, no, you speak that way first and I'll speak this way and then I'll come back to you. It was a bad moment for the legendary Mr. Lewis Hamilton. Now, why would you mess with all these protocols? Why, why the big deal? I mean, we all get out of bed the same way in the morning. We're all just people. Uh, why do you have to pay so much attention to these things? Well, the reason, of course, is that the Queen of England is not just another elderly lady that lives down the street. Uh, she has a high office, a status that requires um, honor. You, you need to pay attention to who she is. Uh, her, her office demands respect, and something is violated when you uh, refuse to follow the protocols. Well, in a similar but vastly greater way, of course, uh, these, these laws that we were reading here in Leviticus are royal protocol in the courts of heaven. God is the great king, the sovereign ruler, God above all gods. He, he's the God that made you out of dust who ordained the entirety of your every number, right, every one of your days, who everything that happens to you. He's the great king. And you don't just come trotting into his presence at, at, like he's your buddy. The, the laws here, you remember, God has come now to live with Israel. He has, he has taken up residence in the middle of the camp, and, and he's called them to come to, and worship him there at the tabernacle, his holy sanctuary. But but they need to know some things. They need to know what God is like. They need to understand that, that there is holiness that adorns him. And that holiness is dangerous. That holiness has to be respected and revered. And, and these laws of cleanliness then are protocols where God says, you're welcome and I call you to come, but come this way. And so let's look first then at the laws and, and then at their significance. In chapter 12, we, all, we have the laws uh, pertaining to childbirth. As Harrison points out in his commentary, it might seem strange that God would declare childbirth to be something that makes you unclean. After all, God uh, loves children. Uh, they are a gift from the Lord. Uh, they are, uh, a, a woman who has had, had many children would be seen to be uniquely blessed by the Lord. So why would childbirth produce uncleanness? Well, the, uh, the answer is found in the text um, that it's not the birth itself, it's the loss of blood that goes with the birth. So in verse 7 of chapter 12, then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. As we're going to see in chapter 15, uh, bodily discharges, particularly um, of blood, renders a person unclean. That does not mean that they've sinned. There's no sin in having children. There's no, there's no sin in, in having a, a leprous disease. But these are things that make you unfit to come into the presence of the Lord. As I explained um, weeks ago now, when our dog Buddy got sprayed by a skunk, uh, he came flying into the house. It wasn't that he had sinned. It's just that he couldn't possibly be in the house with that stink all over him. He didn't fit there. Uh, it had to be dealt with. Well, our, 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 sin, our sin does that, and the laws point to that defiling of sin in general, but these things that are pointed out, they're not sin, they're signs pointing to it. So 
uh, why this, this blood? Why is that a problem? Well, blood symbolizes life in the Bible. And the shedding of blood symbolizes death in the Bible. And death is the, the most vile and unclean thing of all. It is the evidence of the curse of God. And so uh, the new mother then is temporarily unclean, unable to come into the presence of God until this flow of blood is, 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 is done. Now, the more perplexing question is, why are the rules different if you have a boy child or a, or a girl child? If you, have a, if you have a boy child, you're unclean for a total of 40 days. If it's a girl, you're unclean for a total of 80 days. Uh, there are people today who would love to jump all over that to show that the God of the Old Testament is misogynistic, the bigot. Um, that, of course, is not the case. Uh, God made them male and female, co-equal image bearers of God um, in every way. Uh, the church needs to be very clear about that. And yet, the, the difference here seems to... Um, the Bible doesn't tell us... Ex really explain why. Commentators have suggested, and I think this is probably correct, that... The, uh, when a woman has a baby girl, that baby girl will also, in her time, uh, shed blood. And so the mother, in a sense, must deal not only with the defilement of her own uh, blood uh, flow of blood, but that of, of her daughter. But that's, that's the most the text tells us. But clearly, the, the blood is, is the unclean thing, the defiling thing. And so there would be protocols, then, for cleansing. And you read about that in verses 6 through 8. You bring, after the days of the purifying are complete, then you bring to the priest uh, at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb for a burnt offering and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. Uh, if you can't afford a lamb, you could bring pigeons or turtle doves for both offerings. Uh, boys and girls, if you remember when Mary and Joseph um, had baby Jesus, they went to the temple just like the law required. After 40 days, they went to the temple for their purification. That's where they met Simeon. And uh, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord and uh, for Mary to go through the purification. Well, that's the laws concerning childbirth. Then in chapters 13 through 14, we get into the really, really detailed laws concerning leprosy or skin diseases or infections of any kind. Uh, when we hear the word leprosy, we think Hansen's disease, but um, scholars have shown that this word in the, uh, in the, in the Old Testament refers to all sorts of uh, infections so that, uh, that, that pertain to the skin or to a garment of clothing. You can even, even have a house, we'll see in chapter 44, the last part of 44, where houses can have a leprous disease that needs to be cleansed. I'm going to read, if you have your Bible with you, let's look at the first eight verses of chapter 13 so we get a sense of these, these laws. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, when a person has on the skin of his body a swelling or an eruption or a spot and it turns into a case of leprous disease on the skin of his body, then he shall be brought to Aaron the priest or to one of his sons the priest and the priest shall examine the diseased area on the skin of his body. And if the hair on the diseased area has turned white and the disease appears to be deeper than the skin of his body, those are two marks they need to look for. Is it, is it a discoloration? And it does, does it go deeper than the skin? Then it is a case of leprous disease. When the priest has examined him, he shall pronounce him unclean. But if the spot is white in the skin of his body and it appears no deeper than the skin and the hair in it has not turned white, the priest shall shut up the diseased person for seven days. 
And the priest shall examine him on the seventh day. And if in his eyes the disease is checked and the disease has not spread in the skin, then the priest shall shut him up for another seven days. And the priest shall examine him again on the seventh day. And if the diseased area is faded and the disease has not spread in the skin, then the, the priest shall pronounce him clean. It is only an eruption. He shall wash his clothes and be clean. But if the eruption spreads in the skin after he has shown himself to the priest for his cleansing, he shall appear again before the priest, and the priest shall look, and if the eruption has spread in the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him unclean. It's a leprous disease. And that goes on uh, all through chapter 13, and then in chapter 14, you have laws for cleansing lepers and, and ways, uh, then the end of chapter 14, for cleansing houses. It is incredibly uh, detailed. Uh, now, notice that the priests are the ones who have the responsibility for ascertaining whether or not this is a disease that makes one unclean or not. They are the guardians of God's house. They're the ones, in a sense, uh, who are the mediators between God and the people. And so the priests, then, uh, are giving these very specific cues. Look for uh, discoloration. Look for a spread. If you're not sure, then, then put them in quarantine for seven days and see if it spreads. Does it go deeper than the skin? Uh, does it apart, affect just a part of the body or the whole of the body? And it's really detailed. If you read through this, you probably had to shake your head from time to time just to wake yourself back up and plow back in. It's very, very descriptive and very detailed. <clears throat> Excuse me. And if you were an individual... <clears throat> who was, had a, one of these possible infections, and, and the, the, the chapter lists many of them. So again, if you have your Bible there, um, if in, verse, in chapter 13, in verse 9, it says, When a man is afflicted with a leper's disease, he shall be brought to the priest. Verse 18, or, or verse 15, uh, if there's a boil, excuse me, 18, if there's a skin uh, in the skin of one's body, a boil and it heals. Verse 24, if there's a burn, Verse 29, disease in head or beard. Uh, 47, disease in a garment. And you get the whole um, description again of what needs to be done for each instance. And the priest then is, is the one to do the examining. You go to the priest. You see, the, um, the, the priest isn't there to cure you. The priest is there to determine, are you able to come into the presence of the Lord? Is it safe for you to go into the presence of God? And so if we ask the question, why all this detail? I mean, it's really complicated. Why, why so much excruciating specificity? And the answer is, well, probably twofold. Um, it's, it's for the, uh, out of the interest of the, well, of the worshiper, out of concern for the worshiper. God, you see, God is not a squeamish God. He created the human body and all the gross things it does. God knows. But the... The details here for the benefit of the worshiper and in two ways. In, on the one hand, they protect the worshiper from a sloppy diagnosis. Say you have a something funny on your arm, and you've done that. You've gone to the doctor and you say, doctor, I'm not sure what this is, but there's a, I don't know, something weird here. I need you to take a look at that. Well, the, the priest could easily say, oh yeah, leprous. Well, if, that, if, if he does that, your life is destroyed. If you look at chapter 14, turn there maybe for a moment. Chapter 14, verse 45, where we see that a sentence of unclean means utter devastation. Verse 45, 
The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, Unclean! Unclean! And he shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Imagine that sentence being pronounced over you. I mean, we think of the word cancer, and it brings terror because uh, it, it, it signifies mortality. Uh, cancer can do awful things to your body. But when you get cancer, you're not kicked out of the community. You're not required to live alone. You don't lose your family. When you're diagnosed as leprous and unclean in that sense, you lose everything, everything. Your family, your home, your possessions, your friends, your community, you are no longer even allowed to go to the tabernacle. You can't, you have no access to the means of grace. You live, as it were, under the sentence of God's displeasure. That's what you would easily assume and what others would assume about you. And so these very detailed laws are given to protect the worshiper, that, that the, the priest has to be very careful as he diagnoses um, whatever affliction you might be bringing to him. But, but secondly, it's to protect the worshiper from the penalty of death for appearing before a holy God in an unclean state. Turn to chapter 15, and we'll look at verse 31. And this is the only verse in the whole portion that tells us specifically why or the reason for these rules. This is what God specifies as the reason. So verse 31 of chapter 15, Thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. You see, these rules are ultimately about God, what God is like. Because we have vague ideas, vague inclinations of what God is like in creation, but, but unless God would reveal himself to us, we would not know that he's thrice holy. We wouldn't know that holiness is a consuming fire. We wouldn't understand that there's a way to, come, to draw near to him. We wouldn't know what we are like, that we are fundamentally unclean. Uh, if you think that people just know that natively, just go into your community and start telling people that they are unfit to come into the presence of God by nature and, and see if they say, oh, sure, I, I've known that all my life. No one will say that. They will be very upset with you. We assume by nature it's an easy thing to come into the presence of God, that it shouldn't really be a big deal, that we can sort of make our way, figure it out. Well, of course, that's what Nadab and Abihu thought, and they tried it. And they were destroyed by consuming fire. Why? Because God is God. He is a holy, holy, holy God. So you see, God's not, He's not being mean or petty with His people. He's laboring to open a way for them to be in His presence and not be destroyed. He's protecting them from the tragic experience of Nadab and Abihu. But these rules then must be obeyed. I remember, and many of you I'm sure have been to Yellowstone Park, and you see these amazing uh, boiling cauldrons of, of hot, hot, hot water. Um, and there's a path for you to walk through those geysers and those 
boiling holes of, of, of liquid death, right? And, and there's signs that say what? Don't get off the path. Why not? They're just being funny about it? They just don't want you to enjoy your freedom? Experience it for yourself? No, they want you to stay alive. So walk the path. And that's what God is saying with these rules. Walk the path. Uh, I am not safe in that sense. It's not safe to come into the presence of God as unclean people. The laws must be obeyed. Well, let's look then at <coughs> chapter 15, laws concerning bodily discharges. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. It's similar to what we just saw in chapter 12 with the flow of blood. Uh, any discharge of the body was considered uh, unclean, a defiling thing, particularly of blood. And notice in chapter 15 that it would accrue to the very normal life of a man and a woman. So when, when a woman has her menstrual cycle, she's unclean. When a man has an emission of semen, he's unclean. Normal life. Uh, one of the things that uh, the commentators pointed out that I thought was helpful is that um, women most likely in those days would not have had their menstrual cycles nearly as often. They were married young, they, were, uh, they had many children, and they would wean oftentimes till the child was two or three years old. And so they would not be afflicted with this every single month, every day of their, you know, for their whole life. But still, it's a, it's a burden. It's a real burden. Um, the laws show that, that, uh, that if a, a man and a wife had sex, they, they, they were unclean for a period of time. Uh, so they, they need to be thinking about that. If we're going to go to the tabernacle tomorrow, that means we need to, be refra we need to refrain from good God-honoring sexual activity. It's a kind of a nice note just to remind us that sex is not ultimate. God is, is ultimate. And God says you need to refrain before you come into, my tab in, into the tabernacle. Now, the unique aspect of, of bodily discharges is that they render not only the individual unclean, but everything that they uh, sit or lay on. So in chapter 15, verse 4, every bed on which the one with the discharge lies shall be unclean, and everything on which, on which he sits shall be unclean. And anyone who touches his bed shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And whoever sits on anything on which the one with the discharge sat shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And whoever touches the body of the one with the discharge shall wash his clothes and bathe himself with water and be unclean until the evening. Uh, if you have bodily discharges, you are sort of a super spreader of ceremonial uncleanliness. Anyone who touches you is unclean. If they sit on the couch where you are sitting, unclean. Um, it is a, it's a, another, just a burdensome reality. Now, now imagine living in this world. It's, it's, I know it's, it's foreign to us, but we have insight in the Gospels of what it's like to live in this world. So if you remember the story of the woman with the um, flow of blood for 12 years, she's living in this world where these laws are operating. For 12 years, she is unclean. For 12 years, anything she sits on is unclean. Anyone who touches her is unclean. No wonder she'd been to so many doctors trying to find a cure and could not find any. Just imagine the devastating emotional, relational, and spiritual trauma that would be, that would be in her life. But that was the law. If you were a Jew, that's just reality. Reality. 
you don't, you don't treat it like you know, a speed limit, sort of skirt around the edges of it. That is cold, hard reality in which you live. The same with the lepers. The lepers are living in the reality of the, the Levitical laws. They're outcasts. They're outside, outside the community. They're, they're required to let people know, I'm unclean, don't touch me, I'm unclean. And so you, you get a sense of the burden of these laws. The, the story they tell is not a happy story. But there's a point to them, an important point. And let's look at that as we close. The, the laws, I think, <laughs> are doing several things. On the one hand, these ceremonial laws of cleanliness um, sort of reveal the nature of the law in general or reflect the nature of the law in general. You see, the law's purpose is not to cure you. Uh, The law's purpose is to diagnose you. It's It's to help you see the truth about yourself and to diagnose you accurately. So there's there's no question about the reality of your problem. These these laws notice they didn't, there's nothing in there about how the priest could cure the disease. God could have done that, couldn't he? He could have revealed to to the priest, listen, if, if it's this, Take uh, you know, two ounces of that, a pound of that, mix them together, boil them up a little bit, apply it. In two days, it should be fine. God could have done that. He doesn't do that. That's not, that's not the role. You see, the, the, the role of the law is to, is to make a diagnosis and to pronounce, in a sense, a sentence. That's what it does. Now, there are some, you know, commentators point out some health and hygienic benefits of these laws. I think that's true. It is clearly not the point. If that were true, if that was the main point, then why would they have passed away when Christ came? But if, if God was primarily concerned about health, then he, then he could have and most likely would have given the cures. What a, what a testimony that would have been that you know, Israel of all the nations of the world has a cure for all these diseases. That's not what the law is meant for. It's not meant to give life. It's meant to teach Israel what God is like and what they are like, and it has no power to rescue us from the truth of our defilement. Secondly, these laws remind us of the reality of a fallen world. You see, it's interesting that these laws accrue to both good, normal, God-honoring things like having babies and and marital lovemaking. You're unclean if you do those things. And these laws apply to things that we would recognize as uh, results of the fall, to, to... you know, uh, nasty diseases and mildew and decay and mold and, and the flow of blood, things that, that we sense probably aren't going to be there in the new heaven and the new earth. But the, the laws cover all of that. You see, it's a reminder that all of life has been tainted, that there's a fundamental brokenness and curse and defilement and decay that belongs to this whole world. I know it's easy to forget when you, you live in America and you live here in West Michigan and the lawns are manicured, and the lakes are beautiful, and the picnics are wonderful, and it looks, it just looks good and whole, like what it ought to be, and, and there's, there's truth in that, there, there's goodness in all of it, but there's brokenness, and there's defilement, and there's decay in all of it, in your family, in your marriage, in your work, in your body, 
There is decay and there's brokenness. This is not the way it's supposed to be. Something is fundamentally out of order. And so Paul will say in Romans chapter 8 that creation is groaning to be freed from its bondage to decay. God, by these laws, is helping Israel to realize that, yes, they're out of Egypt, but they're not in the promised land. This isn't the end of all things. There's still brokenness and decay and defilement and need then for a Savior. And that's the final thing. These laws point us to the glory of Jesus. These laws help us to understand the unique, unbelievable wonder of Jesus. Because Jesus comes to a world where there are no cures and no answers. There's just brokenness. There's just the sentence of the law. And those who live in that world have no hope for a cure. And Jesus now comes and enters the world and for the first time in human history, there's a cure for what's wrong with us. Hope is born. And so you think of the woman who had this discharge of blood for 12 years. It was as hopeless as could possibly be. There's no hope for being cured. No hope for being made clean. The door's closed. She's a social pariah. But then into her world breaks news of a man by the name of Jesus. And maybe she heard of the miracles or maybe she'd seen him perform them, but she came to believe that there was hope for her and that one touch of his garment could do the impossible, could cure her, could make her clean. And so she approaches Jesus with this audacious faith and she touches him. And everything we've learned in in the book of Leviticus would tell us that, that when an unclean man or woman comes into the presence of God, the Holy Son of God, and touches him, they should die. But this woman understood somehow that there is grace upon grace in this man and somehow in this man the unclean could touch God and be cured rather than consumed. That's that's an astounding thought. That you could come to the holy God in your unclean state, in all your defilement, and you could come near to Him and touch Him and not be destroyed, but be delivered. And that's exactly what happened to this woman. She was immediately fully cleansed, cured. In Matthew 8, we have this incredible story of a leper who came to Jesus saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. It's an incredible thing to say in a world where there's no hope. Somehow this man knew that in Jesus he could, he could acknowledge the obvious, that he was unclean. There was no hiding it. Everyone knew. He lived with the sentence of his defilement, but, but somehow by the gift of faith, he understood that Jesus could turn back his curse. Jesus could wash away his stain. Jesus could open a door for this man to have fellowship with men and most importantly with God. Jesus, if you will, you can make me clean. It's an astounding profession of faith. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. The Holy Son of God touched the defiled leper, the unclean man in his unclean state. And Jesus said to that man, I will be clean. And he was. And friends, that's the gospel. 
Because the law, what it says to that leper and what it said to that woman, it says to all of us that by nature we are unclean, radically, hopelessly unclean. That we have defiled ourselves a thousand times and, and we came into the world bearing the defilement of Adam's, of Adam's sin and have added to that all of our own sin and so that it, 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 it is no possible way for you to change your status on your own. Some of you have tried very hard to do that by being good, by making promises, by going to church, reading your Bible. But you're realizing that nothing really works. You see, that's just looking for the law to do what the law can't do. You can't make yourself clean. Only Jesus can. This morning, some of you are here um, with a deep sense of your uncleanness. You've defiled yourself with lust again this week. You looked at porn. You had sex outside of marriage. Some of you just gave way to your pride and your anger, and you lashed out and you wounded people. Some of you fed your greed and your covetousness. Some of you have not had a thought of God that was sincere or deep or meaningful all week long. And you know it's a pattern in your life. And if, if we could read the thoughts that go through your head and the things that you do and say in secret, you're sure we would all be appalled. You're unclean. Well, friends, that's why the gospel is for people like us. John says the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law says you are defiled, and the law is absolutely right. The law says you are unclean. The gospel says, come, rise. Be baptized, washing away your sins, calling on his name. You see, in the gospel, we can be washed, cleansed, with all that that means. The law says, stay away. Jesus says, come near to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come all who are unclean by nature and stained by your sinful thoughts and words and acts. Come and be cleansed. Come like the leper. Come confessing the truth of your status, the reality of your need, and begging for help. Jesus, if you are willing, Jesus, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Profess your faith. And if you come to Jesus that way, the Bible promises to you that Jesus will say to you precisely what he said to that man. Jesus will say to you, I will be clean. He wills you to be clean. He desires you to be clean, to be washed in his atoning blood, to have your sins forgiven, all of them, washed away, gone in the sea of forgetfulness. And he longs for you to know it. That leper didn't walk away wondering. He was clean. By the word of Jesus Christ, he was clean. And friends, Jesus doesn't want you to walk away this morning wondering if it's really true. He says it's true. Come. I will. Be clean. It doesn't mean you're going to be perfected. It doesn't mean you're not going to struggle with sin. It doesn't mean you don't have battles to face. Of course you do. That's the life of the Christian. That's, that's the journey of sanctification. Of course you do. But will you, the, the difference is, will you walk that in the light of the gospel or under the burden of the law? 
Will you walk in the light of Jesus' pronouncement upon your life? You are clean. You have access to God himself. You are beloved. You're welcomed. My grace is sufficient for you. Or will you walk under the condemnation of the law? Jesus calls you to come and believe. To really, deeply, truly believe. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all, all their guilty stains. Amen? Let's pray. Oh God in heaven, we need, we need your spirit to give us the grace to believe. We can be familiar with these things and yet not have tasted them. So God, help us to taste and see that the Lord is good. Lord, I pray for, for every person that's gathered here this morning and that's listening online. Lord, I, I pray that your spirit would help us to acknowledge the truth that we are unclean in our thoughts and words and deeds and we confess it and we grieve it. But, oh God, I thank you that we can come to a Savior who is able to do the impossible, who is able to speak a word and we are cleansed by his atoning blood. Thank you so much, O oh God, for Jesus who gave his life that we might be washed clean, who bore all of our stain, all of our iniquity and transgression and suffered the wrath of God on our behalf so that we might receive the sentence of justification in his righteousness. And Lord, I pray that we would live then in this gospel, that this would be the wind beneath our wings. This would be the hope and the peace that comforts us and strengthens us. This would be the joy of our salvation. That Jesus has done for us what no one could ever do, what the law could never do. Jesus has made us clean and has welcomed us into his holy presence. And so, God, I pray that we would live in this week as, as your people who actually believe the gospel and who love the Savior and who have a word for a lost, unclean world to come. Come and be clean. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and sing that wonderful hymn, There's a Fountain Filled with Blood. Rejoice and exalt in this truth as you sing it.
God's people said.